0: hello and welcome back to let's pod this my name is andy moore thank you for being here today is august 28th that we are recording this we are just a few days away from september I'm gonna queue up some earth wind and fire after this podcast episode and get ready um, to remember September. I feel like that's when fall happens. and today it's like hundred and six degrees outside. I just got back from from walking a wheelbarrow all the way to my mother's house um, a few blocks away, and I felt every degree of that heat I'm looking for to September. Uh, today we're going to talk about the elections that happened last week in Oklahoma. It was a a runoff election as well as a number of municipal and county races. uh, Kind of a big deal. Uh, And then we'll talk about the RNC. Last week was the Democratic National Convention. This week has been the Republican side, and we want to be even-handed in our discussion of what's happening at the national level. And then we'll pull back and discuss the backdrop for which all of this is occurring, the ongoing uh, and perhaps escalating racial tensions in America. Joining me today, as always, are two lovely people, Bailey Perkins. Hello.
1: Hello, Andy.
0: And Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? What's up? I think we have the same greetings every week. I like the consistency. We are very... Except for that one week that I threw you guys off by trying to rap or something. That was that was fun in a very different way. <laughs> it, it, um did something weird. What did you say? <laughs> um, well, let's jump in with election results from the august runoff and maybe we'll start at the top of the ticket the big kahuna the race that everyone was watching both here in oklahoma and arguably i think nationwide Um, the runoff election for the republican nominee for congressional district five between terry niece and stephanie Bice. uh bailey as someone who is perhaps a bit closer to this race than Scott and I, um, what's your, what's your hundred foot view? What's your takeaway from how this went down?
1: So it puts an interesting situation of what happens in the row. Um And it also demonstrated that sometimes attack ads and negative reporting in the media can work right um, for the, Nese nice campaign and during the last week or two of the campaign before the runoff, there was reported information about Terry Niece's background of telling her employees and staff to lie about certain things during um, their work. Uh, there was reports of Terry Niece's um, Calling herself or referring to herself as doctor, even though she doesn't have a degree at all. Like, not even a <laughs> bachelor's degree. What now? Yes. And then she's like,
2: <laughs> No, I, did, yes. I, I didn't. I did not know that, but in I'm, fact, I mean, I'm really shocked.
1: She has an organization called the Institute for Economic Empowerment of Women. And on that website in the Meet Our Team section, she has Dr. Terry Nees. So I don't know if somebody has ever granted like an honorary doctorate degree or if that's the case, but um, there's no recollection of her having a college degree to get that title of doctor.
0: Much Um, less a doctorate, okay, yeah.
1: (laughs) And then there were a lot of media reports and different sources of funds from that nonprofit being used to pay her business and then also to pay her as well for majority of uh, the the revenue received from that nonprofit. And so I think all of those things within the last couple of weeks were damaging for some of her supporters. And then you saw a lot of, um, many of the, the mainstream Republican leaders coming out on social media with their support of Senator Bice. And so I think overall it was expected to be a close race between the two of them. And there's been a lot of different ads of who's more conservative and who's the biggest supporter on guns and and all kinds of information. And there was even some attacks on uh, Senator Bice. And so I think with all of that information flowing out within the last week or two of the election, that sealed the deal for Senator Vice to be able to win by such a narrow margin. I believe it was less than 3,000 votes that she was able to secure uh, that win for this runoff. And so I think overall, everyone expected it to be close, but it elevates which type of candidate does Republicans want to move forward, right? Do they want someone who is... um, overtly aligning with Trump. I mean, Terry Neese had on her signs, protect Trump. And so now you have a candidate who has been regarded as a moderate, but for this primary, has been really trying to prove herself to be the most conservative candidate. And so now it'll be an interesting display to see, um, can Stephanie Bice appeal to Republicans? Um, can she appeal to, I'm sorry, not Republicans. I need to, I need to take that out. So um, can Stephanie Bice appeal to moderates and moderate Democrats enough in congressional district five to be able to have a competitive election with the sitting incumbent. Because one of the challenges is that the demographics of Oklahoma County particularly, but even with Seminole County and Pottawatomie County that are part of congressional district five, the demographics are shifting to where this district is becoming more of a purple district. So can Senator Vice pivot enough and convince enough moderate voters to support her as we move into the general election, uh, because that's the area where Congresswoman Horn has been strongest, is painting herself as a consensus builder, as um, a moderate candidate who um, has a fiscal responsibility lens um, and is strong on issues of Social justice, right? And so, where does Senator Bice fall within being able to secure enough support to be able to unseat this incumbent, who has also raised more money than she has? So,
2: <clears throat> I mean, I think you, I think you hit hit the nail on the head there. I mean, and for me, you know, I would say, you know, I would say that the Senator Bice has Senator Bice has shown in the past that she can appeal to moderates. The question is. Can she do that now after she spent the last six months running ads of her, like, you know, carrying them guns and I stand with Trump and build, build and the wall and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. You know, does she like, has she did she have enough moderate political capital kind of put in the bank that she still has some to spend or has all that kind of been spent down on the primary? I don't, I don't know that we know the answer to that. Like right after, I mean like, I mean immediately after the the race was called uh, the D C, which is the uh, democratic congressional campaign committee, which this is the, this is the national committee that is in charge with reelecting incumbent Democrats to the house of representatives across the country. They, they put out a, uh, they put out a tweet within minutes that said, uh, it's OK five primary night, which means the DCCC is dropping some new numbers. Um, Horn for Congress leads Senator Vice by five and has greater than fifty percent approval. She's winning. This this is mind blowing. I mean, it makes sense to me, but geez, Senator Horn is winning independence by thirty points, sixty five well, to thirty one.
1: You gave her a um, promotion. Yeah. Congresswoman, not Senator. <laughs> oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me,
2: uh, excuse me. Uh, congresswoman Horn is winning independence by a whopping 30 points, 65 for 31. The congresswoman has a plus 13% favorability and a plus 15% job approval rating. Um, and some of the biggest news that may, uh, may surprise folks a lot – is that in this poll, and this is a, a GQR research poll, um, shows a head to head with Vice President Biden at forty seven percent and President Trump forty eight percent, which is a drop from the election uh, in 2000, uh, 2016 of President Trump by by over thirteen points. So um, that that kind of is that's some that's some context that shows that one in the last four years um president trump is not nearly as po- not nearly as pop- popular in cd5 as he was even in 2016 and this is the district where he did the worst in the state um two it shows that congresswoman horn is very popular and she's people in like bailey you're talking about the 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 value of incumbency this is why incumbency is is so hard to defeat it's hard to defeat even when people don't think you're doing a good job. Uh, See McConnell comma Mitch. Mitch. Um, but it's, it's even harder when people like you and think that you're doing a really good job, right? Like why, why steer the ship in another direction when we like the way it's going and that critical group independence. And I think you could probably throw moderates in there with independence as well. Although some would argue they're not exactly the same thing for purposes of this discussion. We can, I think we can say that they're, they're, they're close enough. Um, Congresswoman Horn does really really well with them not only in this poll but we have objective evidence that she does well too. The US Chamber of Commerce which is hardly a uh liberal bastion, right? Came out this came out this week saying that Congressman Horn is going to be uh or is likely to be one of 18 freshman Democrats that they're uh freshman uh, Congress Congress persons representatives, one of 18 freshmen that they're going to endorse for re-election. Um the state chamber um, about shat themselves when they heard (laughs) that the the national chamber of commerce was, was thinking of endorsing her, but they said, look, she's got a great pro business, pro business voting record. She won an award from uh, them for being one of the most bipartisan legislators in, in Congress. Like, I mean, you can run, you can run ads, you know, you can run all the ads featuring Nancy Pelosi Mm -hmm. and AOC that you want, but um, Kendra Horn has a lot of money and she can use that money to throw up an ad, coming right back and say, uh, "Does does this does, does the U.S. Chamber of Congress do? Do they think that I'm AOC? Do they think that I'm Pelosi? Would I get this? Would I win this bipartisan award if that's how I voted and that's how I represented my my district? No, they wouldn't. So, you know, and the last thing that I'll say that makes this an interesting race is just and this is this is the like um, kind of political science pretend data nerd that I am <laughs> is it's a really interesting map. Um, It's just, it's an interesting map because Senator Bice represents Northwest Oklahoma city and Edmond, kind of the deer Creek deer Creek area. Um, And that was really what brought the race home for her on Tuesday. Um, That is not an area I'm looking back at the results from 2018. um, And that's an area where Congresswoman Horn did, she, she didn't do great up there she really won the race in in the urban core and so the the question i think is going to be like i mean it's it i think it's usually way too simple to say that oh it's it's a turnout election guys it's it's a turnout election like i think that's usually like an overly simple hot take but i mean just looking at the map like it may come down to how much can Senator Bice like, get her supporters to the polls in the northwestern parts of the city and, and Edmond, and how much can the Congresswoman get her supporters out in more of the urban core?
1: Well, I think one element that we have to consider is the current climate that exists. And there's a lot of frustration for, I mean, everything that's happening from race relations to high unemployment rates to um, the state of the economy right now. And so there's a lot of people who will vote based on those things in mind. And I think that resonates in favor of Congresswoman Horn, um, who can speak more freely from some of the things that are hot on people's minds that Senator Bice is going to have to really strategically <laughs> do some gymnastics and um, communicating opinions about what's happening in our current climate without contradicting a fiscal responsibility and all lives matter and speak to you know the heart of what people are seeing on a day-to-day basis. Um, and the other piece too, is that Congresswoman Horn um, has been hosting town halls every week, she's Mm -hmm. very visible in the community and in touch with constituents in a very unique way that her predecessor was not, right? And so I think that's another element uh, that's going to give her an advantage beyond just um, the strength of her campaign fiscally um, and her advantage of being an incumbent and the resources that come with that but just the fact of she's been so present and available. Because there was even a commercial that Congresswoman Horn ran with the mayor of Jones, Oklahoma. Yeah. And he's a Republican saying that he supports Congresswoman Horn because when there was an issue of a bridge that was potentially going to collapse and things happening with infrastructure in his area, Congresswoman Horn came through with the Army Corps of Engineers, and we're able to restore, repair that. And so there's a lot of those kinds of stories that Senator Bice is going to have to figure out how to to counter.
0: Yeah, I think i to address a couple of things that you both brought up. One, Scott brought up a turnout election. I think that's the case. And I I try to hit hard with the numbers whenever I can. I want to remind listeners that even in this election, um, this runoff between Senator Bice and Terry Neese, right? There was only 51, 52,000 votes cast. Now that's just Republicans. They're allowed to vote, but still um, in a congressional district, right? Each congressional district in Oklahoma represents about 700,000 people. Now much of those are children, you know, other folks who may not be eligible to vote for whatever reason, but 50,000 is still small, like a small number. And when it, and of those 50,000, it came down to uh, Three thousand and thirty people that were the difference between this, and so when you so are the niece number,
1: supporters, even going to be motivated to come out. That's a good point, right? Maybe.
0: Right. I mean, I mean, some people, you know, you support a candidate and they lose, and it takes the wind out of your sails, right? And and I'm willing to bet that there are some niece supporters that were so fervent behind her that feel like that a vote for vice is no different than a vote for horn. And they may just not vote. You know, like, I think that's possible. I don't know that that's likely. And I think another factor in turnout models that we need to think about, particularly in Oklahoma, is straight ticket voting, right? Where there's a lot of folks who, and I I think this will happen on the presidential side as well, voters who say, I don't like Biden, for sure. I can't stomach Trump. I'll just vote straight ticket. That way they, in their mind, right, this is, how we all, this is how we all rationalize things. We say, well, I didn't actually check the box for him. And so, like, I'm absolved of some of the guilt if he wins. I don't want him to win, but I want Republicans, and so I'll just check that box. And so I think I'm curious. I mean, the, the therapist, the psychologist in me, like, wants to know, like, what is the, the process of, of voters' minds as they, as they color in which box on their ballot? Um, and so I think we'll see. But I again, I mean, from a, a, just a political perspective, I think we've all would probably agree that of all the candidates in the race, Stephanie Bice is the most similar to Kendra Horn and therefore would be the, the most um, challenging opponent. And this is from before she ever announced. I mean, as soon as, as Congresswoman Horn won, you know the conversation started about who's going to run against her, and and Stephanie Bias was on the lips of everybody I know. Right? Um, in,
2: in fact, and- I'm pretty sh- I'm pretty sure that the RNC uh, asked her to run, and she initially said no, and later had a change of heart. But I, yeah. I think I, I want to say that in like February of uh, 2019. I mean, like within like just a couple months of the election was the first time the RNC had asked. Senator Bice. Hey, uh, we throw some cash your way. Uh, yeah. you into it.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and, and, from what I, from what I've heard, like they ask several people like her, right? Like, um, you know, moderate by Oklahoma standards. Moderate she was moderate on the kids, list. White Senator, women, Senator, right? Senator
2: like, Pugh was on the list. Adam Pugh got asked,
0: um, a couple others. Yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's, is no surprise now you know, we also expected that she would get challenged from the right and she did, and it was very close and here we are. Right. And so we'll see it now. Now I, one of you, I maybe both of you made the same point. What will happen when it's head to head between her and Congresswoman Horn? And does she have the political capital left? Scott, I think that was your point. Um, And what I wonder if it will happen is what we saw with um, Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett when he ran for the same seat. No, he ran for governor, right? Um, anyway, in his race, yeah, he was running for governor that in order to win the party's nomination, he had to run to the right and it was this—it was kind of disingenuous from how most voters relate, uh, related to Mayor Mick and so It was bull Right. <laughs> That's right. Had he made it all the way through, there was a lot of of moderate Democrats who'd liked Mayor Mick in many ways, but then they were like, Oh, but you said this, and like you had to, I know you had to say these things to get other votes, but you lost my vote in the process. And I, you know, this Twitter is not real life, but I think the sentiment on Twitter in Oklahoma City is Senator Bice has, has had to say things to get the nomination that she can't take back, and that will potentially cost her votes across the aisle.
1: Well, and so it's a really interesting dynamic with that because there are people who are far left who don't feel that Congresswoman Horn is moving on progressive issues in the way that they believe. And then there's also this frustration of people having apathy to where like, I'm tired. I ain't gonna vote on, you know, the November election. And so it's I think both of those factors of what Senator Bice will be facing with the dynamics of what's happening and with the incumbent Congresswoman Horn will be facing is what's going to make this a close race. So it's it's certainly going to, to not be a blowout by any means just because there's an incumbent. So it's really going to depend on um, the dynamics that Scott described and who shows up.
0: Right. Well, and I think that's the case, right? Like I think the the weird thing that we're trying to gauge, I know it's not weird. The thing we're trying to gauge is will, will people farther to the extremes on both parties still endorse their party's candidate, right? Like will the far left still vote for Congresswoman Horn and will the far right still vote for Stephanie Bice? I suspect that the latter is more likely than the former i think there are some leftists that would just as soon let it burn down but uh i guess we'll find out maybe that's where turnout matters right like and where straight straight ticket voting matters
2: yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting race for sure you know it's one of those that usually you know usually when you've got you know when you got a an incumbent that's i mean i should I think anytime you have an incumbent, they have a significant advantage, provided that they haven't, like, you know, you know had an affair with the pool boy or pool girl or pool person <laughs> or, like, or whatever. You know, like, provided that there's not, like, some sort of major moral or ethical, like, scandal, and provided that, like… You know depending on the national vibe. There's there's just a lot of things that can matter, but incumbency generally is a huge advantage. And I think in this district, as a Democrat, what that means for Congressman Horn is that she has a chance to hold on to the seat. <laughs> right? Like it doesn't mean right. like you said like like Bailey said, that does not mean that this is like by no, by no means is this like her race to lose. I don't think, you know, I'm not a I'm I'm not a modeler uh or a you know, a data analyst. So I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna say I got any inside info, but I I mean I would be surprised. you know, like if she won this race, if the congressman won this race by you know a full like three or four percentage points, I feel like that would be that'd that be huge. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And and for comparison, I just pulled up the twenty eighteen data when um, Horn ran against incumbent Steve Russell, and that election was uh, less than four thousand votes. So uh as as a uh, comparative, and there was there were two hundred and thirty nine thousand votes cast in that election. So we, you know, uh, four times the turnout from this last week, but it was a narrower margin proportionally. So again, if you think your vote doesn't matter, remember that like that race was only five thousand votes, and when you divide it out by however many precincts are in there, it's just a couple of votes per, per precinct that makes the difference. Well, in, right. with ahead. the
1: context of the 2018 race for CD5, you had an incumbent um, that pissed off enough Republicans <laughs> to draw them to support Horn, but also Horn had a unifying message that brought in and made Republicans comfortable in supporting her. So she have the right campaign, the right organizing experience to then unseat this incumbent. So that's another challenge that's going to happen in this 2020 race is now you have two people who are painting themselves in a similar picture of being the moderate voice. And so it's going to come down to who are people going to resonate with? Are they going to resonate with what congresswoman horn has accomplished over you know the past year and a half almost two years or is it going to be based on um their experience with senator vice um as a state lawmaker so we'll see how it goes
2: Now, andy you you just made the point of like how important you know it is that people show up and vote and that like your vote can make a difference if you actually do the math you know how many votes per precinct it was that the congressman won with in uh 18 did you say that and i missed it
0: i referenced it i didn't say the exact number so uh, i didn't
2: know it so uh the congressman won with an average of 14 votes per precinct yeah uh senator bice won this runoff
0: with an average of 13 votes per precinct Ooh. dun 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 it matters it matters. Well, and the other thing that will affect this race is that there's going to be lots of outside money. And when I say outside by I mean like national organizations, money that are involved. It's already started happening. I saw some commercials on YouTube today that were against Kendra Horn. They weren't for Stephanie Biss, Of course, they were just trying to drag one side down because there will be independent third-party players at work. And that's a good segue for us to talk about the National Republican National Convention. But before we move on to talk about the RNC, there were some other, perhaps even more local races in Oklahoma this week that had historic implications, right? The Oklahoma County Sheriff, for one, um, the nominees from both parties are Black men, which has never happened before, which means Oklahoma County is going to have a Black male sheriff for the first time. How important is that right now at this point in history?
1: So it's definitely a really important opportunity for a Black person to hold that position of power, but it also comes with a lot of pressure and responsibility in this climate. Um, There's a lot of distrust for law enforcement as a whole, um, especially by Black folks because of the amount of police shootings that we've seen, especially over the past couple of years. And so there's going to be a lot of responsibility for whoever is elected as Oklahoma County Sheriff to change the culture of how we do things. And I think people want that shift in culture. Um, P.D. Taylor's campaign focused a lot on, well, I'm going to keep locking up the bad guys. And I don't think that's where Oklahoma County is. Oklahoma County wants someone who's going to help unify the county to help bring programs and services to help people restore so there's a lot of challenges that we're experiencing right now that are cool. impacting the mental health of so many Oklahomans. And the last thing we need to do is lock them up, jail them up, right? We need a sheriff who's going to have, um, a different tune. Um, and I know from Lieutenant Waylon Cubit that's been a lot of his campaign of doing things differently and being more community centered, right? Um, and so, Figuring out – so that's going to be the, the key is is Oklahoma County deciding um, to listen to the nuances of what each candidate is saying and then make that decision. But regardless of, of who's selected, it's going to come with great responsibility um, in this time.
2: Do you guys yeah. know much about um, – I'm blanking on his name right now, the The police officer from Norman
0: Tommy, Tommy Johnson? Tommy. Tommy
2: Johnson. Yeah. I wanted to say like Timmy Jones, and I knew it wasn't right. Um, like, do you all know much about his like his plot? I, I I was unaware that there was a that there was a runoff uh for the Republican nomination for Sheriff. Do you guys know much at all about uh, Officer Johnson and his policies? I know that he's 30. Um, so he's a lot younger than Sheriff Taylor. This is his first run for office. I know he's a Republican. That's really all I know.
1: When I heard that when he worked with Norman PD, he had a lot of supervisory responsibilities. And so I look forward to learning more about him over the next few months, Um, because to your point, it's going to now take more people outside of the Republican primary to learn who is he and what is he about. Um, So that way people can make an informed decision. I don't know if the vote was for Tommy or if it was against PD Taylor. And so that's something that his team is going to have to assess is making sure that um, people know who he is and what he stands for because um, Wayland Cubit has been establishing, you know, a strong campaign, you know, over the past almost year or so. And so it's going to be uh, an interesting race to see, no doubt.
0: Yeah. When we- Honestly, we- I think it, it's going to be very interesting. Um, from what I've read about um, about Tommy Johnson, the Oklahoman, did little brief profiles about him and P.D. Taylor before the runoff, and I had looked at his website some. Um, and it's pretty straightforward and simple about what you'd expect for a county level official that is not a politician, arguably, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. and uh, he comes across, in my opinion, as as like a good dude right and and so does and so does wayland cubit and like they both have been accomplished in their fields in different ways and so like you both said i'm interested in really getting to know them um it was really helpful to me you know two years ago uh let's fix this helped host a debate between the sheriff's candidates that was illuminating to see all three of them on stage um and in a in an environment they were I don't think anything that we're comfortable with necessarily because there's an independent candidate as well. And so I'm interested to see how this plays out over the next few months.
2: i th- I think that we would all agree that like not like certainly not just at not just in in law enforcement, but like across the board in the private sector, in the public sector, one of the things our society needs is a significant increase in representation and leadership by women and people of color, right? Like, I think that's something we would all agree with. Um, To what extent, when we're talking about, like, policing, I guess I don't necessarily think that, like, simply changing the leadership and having better representation in leadership is sufficient. I think it really does come down People talk about training a lot. I actually think it's much less training and much more policy. Um, training is a part of it, but I think it starts with policy. Um, and so, that's my question to you guys: Would, Do you agree with that, or am I missing the mark here? Like, I th- I think it takes more than simply having better, more diverse leadership. I think that that's a vital like first step. But if the policies don't change, I have trouble seeing practically a lot of difference. Is that, is that right?
1: Well, and that's why I say this is going to be a momentous, but a challenging time for whoever is elected as sheriff because they do have a Brown face. Right. And that's going to add extra pressure onto what they're able to accomplish during their tenure. There's gonna be added extra um, expectation on changing things overnight. When we know that when it comes to um, changing cultures and whether it's in organizations or it's in government or whatever the case is, like sometimes that's that's really hard. And it takes um, a lot of time to change internal policies, change the way people do things. Um, but even adjust to what does it mean to police in 2020? How do you do it in a way that's community centered, that's restorative centered, right? And is that the focus of either candidate? I know that's the focus of Waylon Cubit. I don't know if that's the focus of Tommy Johnson, especially because he does have a lot of influences from OCPA and other uh, conservative organizations that typically have the perspectives of being tough on crime and locking up the bad guys and and those types of lenses. And so uh, what will it mean to lead in this time is going to be really tough. But to your point, Scott, it is more than, and, and that's not just for this office of sheriff, but that's for everything. We can't expect to elect a person of color or a black man particularly, and then expect change to happen overnight because then we're setting people up for failure. And so it's going to take um, bold approaches, but also it's going to take the public and his staff and other leaders to support the vision to be able to move bold steps forward. Like, for example, um, not in a right or wrong comparison, but just as a key example, the city of Norman and the Norman... City Council has been taking some bold approaches when it comes to the budget and police budget. Um, The response to that was, "We're gonna recall (laughs) y'all because we don't want you to do it," and not necessarily because what they were doing does or doesn't work. Because we haven't had a chance to see what will result from what they propose. But this was a really bold risk and a change that doesn't align with people's belief systems and what they've been comfortable with and what we've been doing on a day-to-day basis, right? And so it's going to take people trusting the leadership of the next sheriff and giving that person support so that way we can have the change that we're expecting and bringing in a new person. I mean, we just got rid of an incumbent who has been in this work for decades, right? And so what does it mean to ensure that the new sheriff, especially a new black sheriff, has the backing and support that's necessary to take the risk of moving things forward in a different direction?
0: Um, So let's um, move in to the incumbents that lost. Uh, I mean, we talked about P.D. Taylor losing. He was only in office for... One just two years, right? Uh, but at the state level, uh, we had three Oklahoma legislative um, members who lost in their primary runoff: um, uh, Boggs, Paul Scott, and um, Ron Sharp. And Ron Sharp, right? Uh, and so it's been—it's always interesting to me watching social media with folks that are kind of in the hashtag OK ledge world, right? And they're sentiment about uh, these individuals I we had I think we talked about Paul Scott's race a few weeks ago um, prior to the June election because he uh, it was a it was a Republican runoff but he was sending mailers about um, a democratic like campaign organization like a consulting firm um, Skyfire media that works with a bunch of Democratic candidates and apparently like, someone from that company was like sorority sisters with his opponent. And so he was attacking his opponent's sorority sister's husband. And it was like, that's a very, that's a stretch at best. Um, If that's that's your attack uh, on your opponent is that her college sorority sister's husband is a Democrat, then uh, that's a, I don't know how effective that's going to be with, with voters. Uh, and well, so
1: and Senator Scott himself has been a controversial figure since he's been in the legislature. Um he was the member who played pranks on some of the women legislators in the Senate. So the, <laughs> the yeah, the fiasco of like moving the chair thing. It was rumored that it was Oh. Him. Yeah, yeah cuz
2: he did that to Senator Hicks, right? Yeah.
1: And so there's And, uh, and then there's just been things that um he's said that have been controversial and things and so um, it doesn't surprise me that this race um ended the way that it did, because um there were people who were dissatisfied in the in the district in and, and the way that he was performing.
0: It's interesting. Now Ron Sharp, I think, is the opposite of that, or my impression is that he was pretty well liked by members of the legislature.
1: Well, and not even just that, but the unique situation of that uh race because a former lawmaker jumped back into the election process and ran against him in this primary. And so um, Shane Jett was a former lawmaker um, who didn't, he was in the legislature before term limits were put in place. And he didn't reach his full 12 years. So he still had eligibility to come back and run into um, the legislature. However. Ron Sharp was a lawmaker who did face controversy with the school choice community. So um, he was a very vocal um, critic of epic charter schools and held them accountable in many of the different um, financial elements of how they're spending their money and whether that's aligning with the outcomes that they're promoting. And so there were a lot of headlines about him taking on Epic and then Epic trying to sue him and then, and then other situations because he was a, um, a former superintendent. And so that was his lens when it comes to um, public education. And so um, that race was notably close and not surprising to be as close as it was because of um, a former lawmaker who is regarded um, by folks in his community running against um, an incumbent senator.
0: Yeah, that's, um, but it's still interesting. I mean, I, you know, just in the, the storied history of education and public ed in Oklahoma over the last few years, um, that's, uh, it's interesting when a former public school superintendent who had been a champion of public ed and, and had been a, as you said, an outspoken opponent of at least one charter school, um, loses. I, you know, I think over the last couple of years, the public ed community has kind of grown in influence or at least, at least they did after the walkout. Right. And it's, maybe it's waned a bit since then um, for, for Senator um, Sharp to lose. So well, and, his, well, and I, so, I
1: want to bring up one other piece that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Keith Gaddy, he's a professor at the University of Oklahoma and um, is a strong expert in the political science spaces. He tweeted um, on election day that normally incumbent state senators who get caught in runoffs lose about two thirds of the time. It's very unique that all three of Oklahoma state senators who were in the runoff were defeated.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. And you know, on that note, um, I know on Twitter, the the uh, this week has been rough for Okie OK Polls, OK whoever that is. I don't I don't know who they are, but they um, reportedly do some kind of modeling, and they cut a lot of flack through the other day based on their models before the election. But they still went ahead and released their models for November and what it looks like, and what their models show um, as being a few toss-up seats or seats that are uh, potentially in play, uh, correspond with rumors I've heard elsewhere. Um, and it's it's no surprise. It's other districts in the metro areas, right? So it's like Senator Treat's district, Senator Raider's district, um, others like that that are, well, in Oklahoma City, like everything is a suburb. It's It's in Oklahoma City, so it's not really a suburban seat, um, but it's the same kind of residential dominated district, but it's like the next level out, right? And so if you look at if you look at the Senate districts in Oklahoma City, let's say you start with um, Senate District forty. It's Kerry Hicks's district, then uh, District thirty is kind of wraps around it on the west and north. And then district forty seven, which is, is treats district, wraps around that on the west and north. And then Stephanie Bice's district wraps around that on the west and north, and so you you have like this uh, this nesting of districts uh, starting in the middle and kind of going out, and the innermost are probably the most blue, and it started to spread out, uh, and so I'm I haven't looked at Tulsa to see if it's kind of the same situation, but I my hunch is it is, uh, and so it it could be a interesting an interesting November election.
2: You know, one thing that we've talked about some, Andy, is, you know, when people, not politicians, you know, filed their redistricting petition the first time, you know, the uh, response, the response from the some members of the legislative leadership, um, you know, I, I don't think it's surprising to anyone that the legislative leadership was like, no, we want to continue to be in charge of redistricting that's part of our power don't take that away we want to keep it like it's not that's not shocking um i was a little bit surprised at the like degree of like like senator, senator treat statement in particular when the petition was first filed was just like whoa dude like that's take a chill pill man <laughs> like calm, calm down a little bit and i think what you're talking about is illustrative of why right redistricting happens next year um they can see that some of these districts are becoming a lot more competitive and they don't like that. (laughs) And they want to draw them in such a way that they'll continue not to be competitive. Um, You know, that, that change, there is some writing on the wall in terms of what I think Oklahoma looks like, you know, our urban politics versus our more rural politics. And that's starting
0: to extend to the suburbs.
2: Um, And so there we go.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think if you're if you're in a district that is changing away from you, then you want to redraw it to keep you in it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you want let's, to, let's rebalance this so I can keep my seat. And I, I'll be honest, I've been going back reading through old articles in the Oklahoman um, about previous years of redistricting and lawsuits and all of that. And it's bananas, right? Like the Senate's instructions, they're public slide deck that they used in 2011 like just I mean it just says like our goals are to um, you know draw maps that are fair they don't change much they want to respect history and they want to protect incumbents and it's like ah like that's it like and it's I I get it right like I get wanting to protect your seats um but it's not about you it's not all about you it is about the tens of thousands of people you represent and ensuring that they have accurate representation. And I think it is perhaps short-sighted, but it is it is people who feel like they can, no matter who they are and who their district is, they'll do a good job. And I'll represent my district fairly, like is a, um, I, in some ways, a narcissistic view, right? Like to believe that you, you might think you can, and you might try your best but that does not mean that you would be the best representation for that district. Right? Well, and it, we, even we, if you
2: would be, you have to prove that every two years, right? Like, that's why we have elections. It's, well, not, autom- the, it's not automatic.
1: <laughs> we saw with, like, the teacher walkout and several other demonstrations how when put to the fire, there are many lawmakers who were not as tolerant as they paint themselves out to be right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you are representing your entire district, then that means you take meetings from everybody. Um, you don't exclude anybody because of their religious beliefs, or you don't exclude anybody because you know of whatever um, position they have on an issue. Um, the best lawmakers are ones who may be able to say, I disagree with your position, but are, at the very minimum are willing to open their door and hear perspectives of all of their constituents. And so mm-hmm. when, put, you know, when when it's time to be tested on whether or not you can be representative of your entire district, there are some lawmakers that aren't able to do that because they put their belief system in front of their ability to hear other worldviews beyond their own.
0: Right. It is funny, especially based on how many times the phrase cancel culture came up at the RNC to be like, this isn't a new thing, right? Like, it's not just one side that doesn't want to talk to the other. Like, this has been around for a long time. And um, also, it was weird to hear that many people use this buzzword that I've, I've never used myself and I have a loose understanding of. I just felt like it came up a lot.
2: Yeah, the RNC was interesting. And this is, you know, this kind of, this, this dovetails with a little bit from, from my perspective, what we were talking about earlier in terms of like, you know, is diversity in like representation and leadership like sufficient or does that have to be paired with actual like policy change? Cause one of the things that you saw at the RNC this week, I think was a pretty concerted effort to try and like, show hey our party is more than just white people particularly old ones like you know they had um, governor nikki haley in a prime speaking slot they had senator tim scott in a prime speaking slot they had a gentleman from democrat whose name a gentleman from democrat a gentleman a gentleman from georgia uh, whose name escapes me who's a black democrat who's supporting president trump Um, there were several Uh, maybe not several there were many more speakers of color and many more women than there have been i think at rncs in the past um and i think that they were trying to show CEC like we're not a monolith but then in terms of policy one there really wasn't much policy substance in my opinion which to be super frank there wasn't a ton of policy substance at the dnc either um but it was like See, see, you don't have to be afraid of us because we're not just white people. And I,
1: but there also wasn't a unifying message of this is what we believe, but more totally. so this is what we're going to fight against.
2: Yeah, one hundred percent. What's
1: happening in the country, and they're trying to stop, you know, President Trump and his vision to do X, Y, Z. It wasn't yeah. a way of bringing people together, and what we saw from. The picture's painted at the DNC of how we unify the country.
2: Totally agree. To the extent that there was a unifying message, it was this country that we're in charge of that is struggling in so many places is in danger of struggling unless you elect us, the people who are in charge of it, to fix it. <laughs>
0: That's right. Which is what which is what President Trump said in twenty sixteen. He said I at the convention, I alone can fix it. Yes, this.
2: but but now but, but it's like okay, well if you can fix it, then why why haven't you? <laughs> right? Like right yeah, they're trying to try to make your, some excuses. If but if it, your I leadership don't think is it required. <laughs> if your leadership is required to fix it, then why is it a shitstorm, storm, right? Like on your watch. Um,
1: and Scott, I want to mention something to your point of like, it not being enough to have like people with diverse lenses, because there was a mother who has a son who is considered a person of color. And she made a statement that of I would want, they should, or I would want them to you know, profile my son. They should profile my son, (laughs) right? So even feeding into racist tropes and stereotypes that, you know, Black and brown people are more likely to cause trouble and things was was troubling that those things were lifted. And even inviting the, the couple who pointed guns out at the protesters as a keynote speaker didn't Scream unity. (laughs) Right. It was it it felt very confusing, especially if you wanted to say, you know, look at all these people of color that we have involved with, you know, supporting Trump and involved with conservative values. But then you bring these other people who kind of counter that that lens. And so um, just a lot of disconnect for me from from the RNC message.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I think there was a lot of disconnect from both conventions because of the virtual aspect. I think the Democrats did a better job with their production value. Um, but I think, and it, it made it feel more personal, but still, um, it's a difficult, difficult deal. Um, and, so.
1: Well, and one ahead. other piece is that it was ju- there was just a missed opportunity with, with all the things happening in this country to speak to how Republicans are going to address race relations and racial injustice and police brutality in this country. Um, We saw a couple of additional instances of black men being shot by police officers um, and another video of a 17 year old who was aiming to be a police officer someday, and, and was even uh, reported of getting water from police officers, you know, before the shooting occurred. And this young man shot two protesters because he was carrying this um, automatic rifle um, as a way to uh, stop the protesters from looting businesses and being unruly, right? And so there There was a, a definite missed opportunity for Republicans to to speak in where they're gonna fall in unifying the country and being able to speak to the challenges experienced by law enforcement, but the lived realities that people of color are facing and and black and the fear that black people are experiencing right now. And so, um, I know that that's something that may hurt republican candidates in their season for not being able to to speak to what are we going to do in these in these real moments
0: yeah this year just when i think that we've turned a corner on something and that things are going to i don't know maybe get better in some way um 2020 finds a way to like just keep that wound open a little bit longer and in some cases i think that's Especially when it comes to race relations, it's probably what needs to happen, right? Like the like the, the breeding of the wound has to be complete, and and it, if you stop too soon, you don't do enough. Uh, that infection festers longer. Uh,
2: one thing we have not mentioned yet that is important, I think, to put out there. Um, most people probably know that the uh, as. As part of the ongoing, let me also first say that of all the sports leagues, of all the sports ball players, um, I think that the job that the NBA has tried to do to show their support for Black Lives Matter and use their platform as a way to try and push for more justice um, has been fantastic, and I love to see it, and it's awesome. Um, They took, in response to the shooting in kenosha this week they took the step of boycotting their games on wednesday and thursday and said like basically we're not coming back to play until we get a firmer commitment from ownership and league leadership about like exactly kind of what we're going to do to continue to advocate for this moving forward the nba released a statement today that says all basketball arenas will be turned into voting locations for 2020 um, ample space for people to large amounts of people to vote safely centrally located etc uh Storm Jones just uh, tweeted that apparently all does not include the Chesapeake Arena in Tassin, <laughs> Oklahoma City because the county election board says that people would need new voter ID cards and it would be out of the way for many people. Um, we have talked to election board officials on the show before. Um, I don't know if they're willing to come back, but I would really like to know um, one if people can get there for basketball games on Wednesday nights at like six o'clock, I don't see why they can't get there by seven o'clock to vote. Number one, if it's not out of the way for basketball games, why is it out of the way to vote? Number one, number two, why do they need voter ID cards that shows their precinct? Um, you can vote with your driver's license or a passport that doesn't have your polling location on it. So I don't understand why you would need new voter ID cards. Like you should just make it anybody who lives in Oklahoma County could or any anywhere can come vote. I mean like I, like like logistically there's some stuff to work out, but I don't I like the idea that like nope, can't do that. It's just like an insurmountable challenge. Um, I find frustrating and I feel like someone, I don't know if it's me or somebody else or us or who, but someone I feel like should be pressing the election board on why this is like not doable.
1: Well, Scott, the problem is we set things up originally in how our processes work to where all of these things have to be in place in advance of a certain amount of time before you can make certain changes. And the election board is under-resourced and understaffed. And so it would create some logistical challenges for them to be able to ensure that everything is suitable in the Chesapeake arena to have this Um, election, but also like if they did that in Oklahoma County, then they would have to change how they do things in the 76 other counties. I mean, what about the BOK Center? You know what I mean? And so it does add a lot of logistics that need to be thought about, but nonetheless, you're right, the NBA should be committed, I mean, commended for taking uh, these steps um, in a bold way of standing with Black folks and allies who um, are on the front lines protesting for justice because these things continue to happen. And I think the significance of when the NBA decided to do this matters uh, because the first boycott happened on the fourth anniversary of Colin Kaepernick kneeling um, during the national anthem at one of the games. I mean, Mind you, there's been many Colin Kaepernick before Colin Kaepernick. I mean, we're going to Muhammad Ali, um, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and several other athletes over time who have opened the door for Colin Kaepernick to to be that kind of uh, – to take the risk that he took four years ago. But Colin Kaepernick also opened space for the NBA players to now follow suit and and having a, a boycott. And so I, I love this era of empowering athletes to use their platforms uh to speak for justice and to fight for things that matter because at the end of the day, they could be one of the people who face police brutality. Yeah. They would be driving in one of their cars and and get shot one day. So this is an issue personal to them.
2: And they have. I mean, one of the one of the bucks, like just like within the last quarter or two years, like one of the one of the Milwaukee Bucks was um like handcuffed, thrown on the ground, and tased for protesting a parking ticket, right? Like he's an NBA player. Um, later the city offered to pay him four hundred thousand dollars let's talk about it and he said oh uh, that's just a week's work for me so no it's <laughs> so, i'll 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 not take your settlement and kindly tell you where you can go and i'm um, billy i see your point about like i mean i know they have processes and there's like administrative rules and there's uh, but i mean like one we're in a state of emergency right the, the governor has extended the state of emergency so like the new like emergency rules voting guidelines are still in place in terms of the cost like why i mean like I bet the thunder could pay for it, right? Like the thunder could pay for the logistics like you could find people like I like I see your point. <clears throat> you know, and like then you have to what do you do with all the other counties like I just feel like I feel like there's there's got to be a way that we can do things to like enfranchise the most people and not disenfranchise the most people. And like what? it seems like whenever we make a choice to go down one path we always choose the path that makes it harder. Why can't we choose a path that makes it easier, particularly for the people for whom it's most difficult in the first place?
0: Right. I mean, I think Scott, you're, you said there we should be able to do things to make it easier, and we still could, right? Like the NBA's offer. I would, if if I was in charge of the election board, I might explore other options, right? Like because of how you know. Um, elections are administered on the state and local level and because of how oklahoma's elections are administered our machines our paper ballots how it all works out i can see where the logistical challenges might be too much for one we already passed the ballot printing deadline and so when you think about the sheer number of different ballots right like not every oklahoman gets the same ballot because you have you have municipal issues county issues school board issues all of this stuff so even you know not everybody in oklahoma city or oklahoma county gets the same ballot and i don't know if the machines have to be programmed a certain way you know there's lots of things that if they had more time to plan it's possible but what if we instead went back to the nba and said hey guys listen this is pretty rad thanks for your offer I don't know that it'll work for election day, but what if we could we use the Chesapeake Arena as a absentee ballot drop-off place? Could we put some drop-off boxes there? Could we have notaries that are there to notarize for free? Notaries we, in, the t-
2: in the ticket windows and people can walk up to the t- There's already a freaking glass barrier there, right? right
0: like, like There are things that we could do that would, I think use the spirit of what the NBA is trying to do for the common good of a better democracy while maintaining our excellent security elections uh, security of elections and um, and and not confusing voters and and still it would it would be additive not um, not replacement replacement well,
1: to your point, This is the best time to talk to your lawmakers about these ideas um, on what we want change and added to the process to make it easier for more people to participate in elections. Mm -hmm. Leader Emily Virgin is going to be doing an interim study on voting in elections. This is a perfect topic for her to be able to explore and give ideas Uh, to our state election board on other ways that we can help make it easier and expand opportunity uh, for people to participate in elections securely. Um, For, like our our state election board loves to hear from the public on ideas and issues. And so this would be a great time to reach out to um, Paul Zerix, who's the secretary of the state election board and sharing ideas on ways that the election board can do some innovative things that doesn't violate any administrative rules nor any state statutes to help more people be able to vote. So just a plug of, of we have to share ideas and communicate with the state election board and our lawmakers to help push these different changes to come into being.
0: Yeah, you know, I think one of the strengths of our state election board is the, um, predictability and reliability of how the system works. Uh, And so even small changes like allowing us to use our copy of your, of your ID in lieu of having your ballot notarized, like throws things off. I could cause a lot of questions for a lot of people. Right. And, and, and just like that shift can ruffle, like send ripples of discomfort and, doubt in the public, and that is not what you want to do with elections, right? And so I I do commend Paul Zirax for, like, trying to keep it as an even keel, even if there's things I disagree with him about, or we get frustrated that I think he could have done it differently and still been equally secure and and more accessible. But um, that's why he's the election board secretary, and I am not. And, you know, as one other note about the election board going forward... Uh, two other notes about the election board going forward. One is that by the end of next year we should have online voter registration in place. I think it's in the law now that we're supposed to. That is a huge deal. Like that is a huge shift in how our elections go. You can already request your absentee ballots, which you can do right now and you should do. Um, regardless of whether you're going to vote absentee or not, I you know, I try to recommend it. It is helpful. It is handy. It's an excellent reminder. And it comes right to your door and it gives you plenty of time to read and review those ballots before you walk into the ballot box. And who knows what will happen with COVID between now and November 3rd. You may get that ballot and decide that you really do want to vote absentee, in which case you would have it already. So you can go to uh, OK.gov slash elections and sign into the online voter tool. I'm sure all of our listeners are very familiar with that. If you haven't been already, you should go check it out. You can see when they've mailed your ballot. You can see when they've received it and when it's been counted. It's a little bit of a tracking system in there. It's very nice. Um, it is it, it is arguably as easy to use as it could be, as one might expect. As far as our state government websites go, it's not terrible. So um, do do that. We recommend it. Uh, if you have questions about what's on your ballot, we'll be talking about things between now and the end of the year. There are two state questions on the ballot, 8.05 and 8.14. We will certainly have episodes about each of those between now and November, which is, gosh, just a little over two months away. That's crazy. All right. On that crazy note, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. Please, uh, give us a little rating and uh, tell your friends about our podcast, especially in this time of year. Good, reliable, nonpartisan, you know, information about elections is a hot commodity. And we hope to provide that to you, our listeners. Um, You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, If you have any questions uh, and Facebook, we are at let's fix this. Okay. Feel free to shoot them over. Um, And if you've got ideas for episodes you want to have in the future, we'd love to hear them. We'll see if we can make it happen. Scott is at SC Melson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. And I, Andy, am at Andy OKC. Uh, you can also like our Facebook page, which I already mentioned. Uh, go to the website, let'sfixthisok.org. Sign up for the newsletter, read the blog. Uh, maybe give us a donation, which is also a super cool thing to do. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott, Bailey, and me, and Let's Pod This as a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network, based in Oklahoma City. Our theme music is a song called Rhino Funk, by artist So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, non-profit organization. We strive to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with your government in meaningful ways. We encourage you to get out and be involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week, everybody.